Please stand with me as we read from God's word. The scripture focus this morning is found in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, You must set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected, but when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul went home to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some, some wicked men said, How can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, my brother and I used to pretend that we were heroes with swords. We were the only ones who could save the day. But perhaps we set the bar a bit too high. Maybe we are just normal people, the ones who get saved. This week, I watched a film from one of my absolute all-time favorite people, directors, actors, writers, a man named Zach Braff. And in his film, Wish I Was Here, it starts with that very monologue that I started with. In fact, it starts and ends with it. And it's something that I think will stick with me for a very long time because it's so true. When we're little, we want to be a hero. We want to save ourselves and save others. We read books and we watch movies dreaming that we are the hero. But what if we're just the background people? What if we're just the people who need saving? This week, I get to continue a message series that we have been going through called When Mess Meets Mercy. The title of my message is Undercover King. I'm Stephen. I serve as the church planter in residence here with the Hallows. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that this uh, message series, When Mess Meets Mercy, 
is a study of a book of histories that we call 1 Samuel that's found in the Old Testament or the first half, uh, first part of our Bible. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up. We're going to go to 1 Samuel. We'll be in uh, chapter 10. If you're looking for it, you can just kind of open your Bible, start at the left, flip a little bit. Uh, you're looking for ones and twos before the names. Uh, 1 Samuel is the first one of those books. If you can't find it, there's a thing called the table of contents. Open that up, find it. It's the ultimate cheat code. It's better than up, up, down, down, left, right, BA, start, uh, which is the ultimate cheat code, the Konami code for any of you guys that know what that is. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd love to give you a little bit of a recap, just in case it's your first time tuning in. If it is your first time with us, thank you so much for joining us in worship today. But maybe you just missed a couple weeks, uh, or maybe you just need a refresher. So what we're doing is studying the history of a people called the Israelites, who were God's chosen people. And ever since they left Egypt and came out of slavery, they've been trying to find their footing as a nation. They've also been trying to figure out who this God that they call Yahweh was. God had made the people of Israel distinctly different from what they ate to how they interacted with each other, even how they were ruled. Up to this point, they had been ruled by people called judges. These judges would settle disputes and would help the people to uphold and interpret the laws that God had given them. And so one of these judges, a man named Samuel, who, is, who we get the name of this book from, was the judge of Israel at this time. And he has been the, the main protagonist in the story so far. But we're kind of reaching a turning point in that narrative. See, Israel had grown tired of being different. They wanted to be like everybody else. So they go to their judge, Samuel, and they demand a king like all of the other countries around them. So Samuel says, okay, we'll see what God has to say. And God grants the people a king. Last week, or two weeks ago, sorry, we were introduced to a man named Saul who would become that king. And, and Mark showed us how God's providential hand brought Samuel and Saul in, uh, in crossing each other. And Samuel was told that this is the man who will deliver the people from the hands of the Philistines, a people group that had been harassing the Israelites for years. Then last week, we saw Saul begin his kind of path towards being king. Andrew showed us that it started with a, a secret anointing between Samuel and Saul. And then God orchestrated sign after sign after sign to confirm to Saul that he was the one that God had chosen. But at the end of the passage, we see Saul being aloof. His uncle asks him, what did the prophet tell you? And Saul answered, he told me where the donkeys were, or he told me that the donkeys had been found. He was referring to the initial kind of trek that Saul had started on, where this story of Saul started, a mundane task to go retrieve some lost donkeys of his father that God used for miraculous purposes. So here we find ourselves Samuel knows who the king is going to be. Now it's time for him to tell the people who it is. So we pick up in verse 17. Oops, if I can get to the right page, that would be helpful. Sorry, guys. Verse 17 says this, Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah. 
and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Now, week to week, we may miss a few things that we would notice if we were reading this in one sitting. And and something that we really need to notice about this place that they're gathered, this place called Mizpah, we saw it in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the people had cried out to God, thinking he had abandoned them. And so they come to Samuel and ask Samuel to pray that God would forgive them. So Samuel gathered the people at Mizpah and prayed for the Lord to forgive them. When the Philistines had heard that all the people were gathered together, they actually come and try to attack and overcome the Israelites, but God saves them. So here we are, a short time later, gathered at the same place, but instead of asking God to save them, the people are asking for a king to do it. And God has conceded to do that, but first, he wants to give them a little bit of an admonition, and he speaks directly through Samuel. So let me talk for just a second about Samuel. I've been using the word prophet, but um, the, the word that really was used at that time was seer. Um, but prophet is going to kind of be this new word that we take, uh, we take on. And, and as we kind of work through, I'll uh, you know, kind of walk us through that. But we today, we think of prophet as a, a future teller. And, and that's That is true, but it's a very myopic view of what Scripture actually says that a prophet does. A prophet is going to speak the word of the Lord and is going to to actually say, hey, what I'm about to say isn't my words, but God's words. And it always is calling the people back to repentance. And so this story, uh, we've really been focusing on Saul in the last couple chapters, but we're going to have Saul take a back seat and kind of be in the background because what's going to happen in these few verses is a story between God and the people. And so Samuel begins to fulfill the role of a prophet here, and he does what's called, uh, we call it the prophetic formula, where he says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. And we see many prophets between now and, and the end of the Old Testament say these exact words. So here God reminds the people that he had already rescued them many times. But they have decided that God's not cutting it anymore, so God reminds them that they're rejecting not Samuel's judgeship, but God's kingship. They're substituting a constant king for a counterfeit one. No matter how great Saul would be as a leader, he would never measure up to God's leadership. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Beware of counterfeit kings. How often do I do this in my own life? How often do I look to someone else or something else to lead me? But God constantly reminds me that he's the only one that can save. Today in our society, we put so much faith in in things, specifically right now in government entities, to save us from a global pandemic and fight for our rights and take care of us and all these other things. We're expecting others to take care of our bodies But what about our souls? See, even though we have great leaders, they can only take care of this here on earth. 
and they will be imperfect. But we do have a king who can take care of not only our lives and our bodies here on earth, but our eternal souls as well. So what counterfeit kings have we allowed in our lives? It doesn't have to be a person. It's often more ethereal. It could be money or power or security. For a long time, for me, it was relationships, whether they're romantic or otherwise. I felt like I needed a partner to pull me in the way that I was supposed to go. And when I met my wife, I thought I had found it. I thought I, thought I had found the one thing that would anchor me to Christ. Now, while my, my wife has done a tremendous job of this, that's not her job. When I put my wife in the place of God in my life, she is doomed to disappoint me, and I am doomed to be disappointed in her. Also, she never asked to be put in that position. She doesn't deserve to be put there. When we anoint kings that don't deserve to be there outside of our rightful king, Jesus, we're setting ourselves up and we're setting them up to fail us. The people of Israel would learn this lesson time and time again. They had this kind of grass is greener on the other side effect going on, where they assumed that if they could just find the perfect king, he would save them from their afflictions and save them from their enemies. But what they failed to realize was that God already had. They didn't realize that these other kings that surrounded them were counterfeits and not constant. Does that hit you as hard as it hits me? Because it's really easy to look at the Israelites and think, how dumb are these people? They've got God. But what we fail to realize is that thousands of years later, we still do the same thing. Thousands of years later, we continually substitute our constant king for a counterfeit one. Now, sometimes these kings are easy to identify, but sometimes they're undercover. Sometimes we have to mine our hearts to know really what we have put in the place of Jesus that is leading us. Fortunately for us, we have, if we're Christ followers, the Holy Spirit to guide us to these people and places if we just ask and listen to his voice. The people of Israel, however, weren't so lucky. They didn't have God's Spirit living with them, so they depended on external signs to prove what God's will was. So we see a little bit of this in verse 20. Let's look at it. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. Now, reading this in English, we, uh, it sounds like Samuel was just kind of like calling people up and saying, you, you. You, but that's not really what's happening. See, what, uh, what's actually happening in the original language tells us that they are casting lots. Now, uh, casting lots is something that happens in Scripture quite often, um, but we don't really know what those lots were. We know that it was some kind of randomized selection system. It could have been like dice or drawing straws. It was something like that. Um, but uh, what's really interesting, this specific language that's used in this passage is only used a couple times in Scripture. And it has this very interesting, very specific meaning. 
when lots are cast like this, it's used to find a culprit. You see, the original readers would have understood this, and we might miss it here in English. So while this type of choosing, casting lots, can be used to ascertain the will of God, there's something here that's a little bit heavier. It's a little bit weightier. The language here implies judgment. In Samuel's opening speech of the gathering, the Lord reminds the people that they have rejected him. And if you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, you know what happens next. If you aren't familiar with the story of the Israelites, you won't be surprised to find out that when people reject God, judgment comes. So God's allowance of a king to lead Israel holds two purposes that God often weaves together. Judgment and provision. Here, God not only judges Israel, but he provides for them. How can he do both? I'm so glad you asked that question. Simple answer is he's God. He can do that. The longer answer is a little bit more complicated. If Israel would have just allowed God to continue to be their king, things would have gone much better for them. He judges them by providing a king that he knows will constantly fail to do what they want him to do. He also knows that sorrow will come as a result of appointing a king. Saul's reign and the reign of many other kings of Israel result in thousands of deaths and so much heartache. It's chronicled throughout the book of Samuel and throughout the rest of the history of the Israelites. When kings turn from God, the entire nation turned from God. When kings engaged in battles and wars that God had not ordained, thousands more men died. Time after time, kings failed and exposed God's people to judgment. On the other hand, God's allowance of a king also provided many things for Israel. First of all, it provided for the desires of their heart, even though it wasn't his desire for them. Second, God had already provided the rights and rules of kingship back in a book that we call Deuteronomy, when God was giving the laws. Isn't that incredible? God knew that the people would demand a king at some point, and he had already given a way for that to happen. God setting things up so that people can be rescued is kind of his thing. On that note, the third way that God provided for his people here through judgment was for a future rescue. We'll talk about that more later. But if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Look for provision through judgment. Now, judgment isn't a word that I like very much, and it's a real trigger word in our society. But there's no escaping it. When we read the Bible, we see it time and time again, and we are often tempted to skip it because it's hard to understand and fully grasp, and we honestly, we just don't like it. But it is a provision of God's lordship and leadership that cannot be ignored. Now, let me say this really quickly. Tragedy and God's judgment are two very different things. The loss of a child, the death of a loved one, disease, natural disasters, 
are the results of a fallen world that is incredibly broken. And God is desperately trying to restore it. So judgment and tragedy do not go hand in hand. However, when we step outside of God's will and ways, judgment comes but for a great act of mercy by God. And if we trust that God is good, and if we trust that God's always consistent with the content of his character, then we have to assume that judgment is somehow good. There are really two types of judgment that we see in Scripture, correcting and perfecting. Sometimes it's a double whammy. Sometimes it's one or the other. Correcting judgment, really what it is, is, it a, is it, it's showing us how we are failing to be the people that God created us to be, the new creations. It's a, it's a gentle hand to show us how we can be what God had wanted. Perfecting judgment is a wonderful tool to help us be more of what God is allowing us to be. So where correcting is changing a failure on our part, perfecting is pushing us towards telos or this completion of who we are and who we are supposed to be. Have you ever gone bowling? Ever used bumpers? Ever thought of those as judgy? They're super judgy, right? As soon as that ball gets near that bumper, it careens off in the other direction. Like, that's super judgy, right? But really, what is it doing? The bumpers are correcting a bad throw and hopefully perfecting our form so that we can accomplish the rules and the goals set out to bowling, knock down the pins. So just as bumpers are judgment on our bowling prowess and allow us to accomplish what we set out for, judgment is also a tool to allow us to be who God created us to be and do what God created us to do. God does provision through judgment so well, and it's incredible. Now, I, I know this provision seems a little more existential, but there's some tangible things as well. Often when God withholds something from us, we see it as judgment. But how often is it that God is withholding something because he has something better for us later? It's so easy for me to look at a situation and say, God, why aren't you giving me what I want? And forget what God has already done, what he's continuing to do, and what he's planning to do in the future. I know that I can get so focused on this that I miss God's provision through judgment. But here we see God providing so many things for Israel, right in the midst of them being judged. At the end of this passage, we see this weird statement. They looked for him and he wasn't there. So set up the scene, millions of people, God had just whittled it down to one guy from millions. But the dude ain't there. Like, everybody is here, family meeting, let's go. God has chosen this person, and he's gone. So the people actually have a pretty decent idea. Let's ask God where he is. Verse 22 says this. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? 
The Lord replied, there he is, hidden among the supplies. First off, the cat is literally undercover. Works so well with the sermon title, right? But I don't want us to miss this. God has just been rejected by his people. So he providentially provides a way for Samuel and Saul to meet so that God can tell Samuel, this is the dude. Then he provides sign after sign after sign to confirm to Saul that he is chosen. And then God allows the the lots that were cast to pick out the specific one that God had already picked. Do we see a pattern here? God is the one working on behalf of his people all the time. Even though when he has provided everything, the Israelites are still needing him. I think this is a really good takeaway for us. Never outgrow a dependence on God. Seems like a simple statement, doesn't it? Like, duh. I need God for everything. But it's so, 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 so easy to quickly forget words like what were written by the early church father Paul when he was writing a letter to a church that he had started in a place called Colossae. He said this, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. But like most things, Jesus put it best. And we hear the words of Jesus as told by one of his best friends, a guy named John, in this biography we have of Jesus that we call the Gospel of John. It's recorded that Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Now, it's kind of comical that the provision that God had already provided needed to be pointed out by him again for the Israelites. It's like a like straight-up facepalm moment for them. But it's a poignant reminder for us that we have to depend on God everything. The story continues like this. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. They're talking about Saul. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people home. This is the climax of the second act of Saul's three-act road to the throne. First was his anointing by Samuel that Andrew hit last week. Now we have his announcement as king out of the mouths of the people. Then next week we'll see his ascension to the throne. But that won't be until after he delivers the people from their enemies and saves them. He's been announced, but he doesn't actually exercise his power here. Samuel is the one to send people home. In fact, Saul actually listens to Samuel. 
But before Samuel sends them out, he does something that's very profound and very important. He writes on a scroll. Now, we don't really know what was written on this scroll, but there's a couple ideas. The first idea is that it could be a rehashing of the warning he had told the people back in chapter 7. The second idea is that he was writing out the, the rights and rules of kingship that were set up down in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But what I really kind of feel was happening here is that, that Samuel was uh, party to a covenant that was between the king and the people that would be placed in front of God and it would be a covenant that would hold them together. This is something that Jewish protocol, legal protocol called for. And so there's a very good possibility that this is what's happening. But it doesn't really matter what was written. What we understand is that Samuel is very quickly showing that Saul would be king, but that he would be subject to and be under the law. He would not be placed above it, which puts him in stark contrast to all of the surrounding kings whose word was law. So even in God allowing the Israelites to be the same, he makes them different. Now, if you've been around the Hallows for any amount of time, you've heard uh, Andrew talk about the three offices that are laid out in Scripture of priest, prophet, and king. The priest acted as a mediator between man and God so that their sins could be atoned for and they could be ceremonially cleansed. The prophet, like we, I talked about a little bit earlier, often could foretell future events, but always spoke with authority of the word of the Lord and called people to repentance. And now we see king enter the mix, a man who would come and uphold the law and lead the people. But I don't think this is what the Israelites were thinking when they wanted a king. I think they expected that their king would replace God, not be under him. Because the, what they understood of kings around them was that kings were often deities. They knew that Pharaoh was and other ancient Near Eastern kings. So the, from the get-go, they were disappointed. Israel's kings would be held to the standard of the law, but they would continually fail until the one who was promised to save the people would come. The man who would be priest and prophet and king and God, all in one. Jesus. You see, the story of Saul begins this overarching story of humanity that will continue till the end of time. Just as Saul was anointed by Israel's first prophet, Jesus was anointed by Israel's last prophet in John the Baptist. Just as Israel proclaims that Saul is king, Jesus is proclaimed as king out of the mouths of the people on what we call Palm Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem. Just as Saul will ascend to the throne after he saves the people from their captives, Jesus will ascend to his throne after, the, after his resurrection, after he has defeated sin and death that have held us captive, and he rescued us. And one day Jesus will return and be king of a new heaven and a new earth. This story starts to take on much more weight than just the story of Israel and the king. But honestly, it's the last verses of this passage that really bring everything home for me. 
All the things we've talked about are good. They're all true. They all worked on my heart as I studied them. But these really bring it home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. So a few things that stuck out to me here. First, we see the people's reaction to God's provision. The wicked men, or other versions also call them worthless men, immediately question what God has obviously appointed. As Andrew pointed out last week, God's appointments are often very divisive. In this case, we see those whose hearts have been touched by God following Saul, acknowledging the decision that God had made. What do our hearts do when judgment comes? What do our hearts do when someone is appointed that we don't agree with? Do we lean into God's provision or do we scoff? The other thing that struck me is the statement that the wicked men say. The translation that we're reading, the CSB, literally translates this phrase, how can this guy save us? Have you ever seen scripture use the word God? Not man, not, you know, not some other word. How can this guy save us? If you read that as derogatory, you read it correctly. In the original language, it is. It's a derogatory term. They see Saul, and they assume he's not the leader that they wanted. Which is strange, because what we know about Saul, he kind of fits the bill. He was tall and handsome. Isn't it kind of weird that those are the two things that are attached to him? Not he was wise and kind. Not he was righteous and faithful. They didn't even throw out like, hey, he's good at his job. Nope, he's tall and handsome. Let me just say that if tall and handsome is your prerequisite for anointing a king in your life, maybe some self-reflection is, is needed. You know, maybe some time with Jesus. I don't know. But what we see is that Saul is literally pulled out from undercover And the people immediately say, long live the king. And Samuel says, look, this is the guy. He's the chosen one. There's no one like him in all of Israel. Saul had something that set him apart. And so when he gets picked, everyone just says, he's it. How often do we find ourselves doing the same thing? We look at jobs, relationships, a stock market. And we say, yeah, that's it. That's the thing that will save me. But here's the thing. That ain't it. No matter what that thing is, no matter what it looks like, no matter who it is, it cannot save you. Jesus, though, comes in a very different way than Saul did. There's another prophet, a man named Isaiah, and he described hundreds of years before Jesus came, he described how Jesus would come. Isaiah said this, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. As Andrew showed us last week, 
there weren't a lot of people who believed that Jesus could save them. They were familiar with Jesus and they knew him as a child. They knew his parents and they knew that he wasn't the son of a priest to be able to offer forgiveness of sin. They knew that he wasn't the son of a prophet to teach like he did and to predict that the temple would be torn down in three days and rebuilt, which was a foretelling of his own death and resurrection. And they definitely knew he was the son of a carpenter, not a king. Because they didn't see him as anything special, so many of them missed that he was the son of God. So they asked, how can this guy save us? The religious leaders saw him, and they knew he wasn't the Messiah. When the people called for him to be king and to start a revolution, and he turned away, they said, nope, he's not it either. The Roman centurions who executed him mocked him with a sign that said, King of the Jews. And they laughed at him and said, this guy can't even save himself. How can he save his people? And then we see this story of Jesus at his crucifixion, hung between two men, one wicked and one on whom God was working. The wicked man shouts to Jesus, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the man who was listening to God, the man on whom God was working, says, we suffer justly. Leave him alone. Be quiet. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We see a man on a cross dying justly seeing the ultimate judgment on humankind, the judgment for sin. We see Jesus, he who knew no sin, becoming sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He sees this judgment, and what does he do? He follows Jesus. The last thing I want to tell you guys is trust that Jesus can save. The world looks at Jesus and still says, how can this guy save us? And to be honest, there are times in my life where I do the same. In moments of grief and sorrow, when I am overwhelmed, when I have no answers, I look to the sky and I say, God, how can you save me? But by his grace, every time, he does. Every time this rejected, unassuming, undercover king comes to my rescue. Saul is the first in a line of kings who would fail to rescue their people. But Jesus is the once and for all, the once and forever king who would not just save our bodies, he would save our souls. The king of kings stepped into the world he created, taking on human form to show us the way back to him. No other king can do that. No people like that. No other king can stand in front of his people and say he paid a debt they could not pay. 
The true king of the Jews allowed himself to live under the law, not to destroy it, but to fully fulfill it. And in doing so, after with his sacrifice, saved his beloved creation and rescued us. Every king turns out to be counterfeit. Ours proves to be constant. When I was a kid, my brother and I used to pretend that we were heroes with swords. We thought we were the only ones who could save the day. Perhaps we set the bar a bit too high. Maybe we're just regular people, the ones who get saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Lord, I anoint you king of my life, that you would be my only guide, that I would put you in the place that you deserve because of who you are. Lord, you are a rescuer. God, thank you for sending your son to save us. Thank you that in the midst of grief and sorrow, in the midst of tragedy, you are still good. That you still reign and you're still in control. God, help us remember that every king is a counterfeit one. And you are the only constant. God, we love you. In Jesus' name.